We're looking tonight at Second Peter. Second Peter. Chapter two, this is page 1019 in the Blue Bibles. Second Peter, it's sort of a strange book. There's a lot of hard things that Peter has to say about false teachers. They're strange, at least uh, strange to us in the, in the West. Things he says about angels. And as we've been working intermittently through this book, we now come to the middle of chapter 2, verse 10, where, for lack of a better term, Peter really goes on a rant about these false teachers. He started at the beginning of chapter 2, and now he's really getting cranked up, and he'll keep going into verse 17 and following. And what is he up to with this sort of language? That's what we want to look at. So follow along as I read, beginning at the second half of verse 10. Bold and willful... They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, speaking of the false teachers, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So when I study a passage like this, I I do confess to scratching my chin a few times and saying, where am I going to go with this? Um, where, Where is Peter going with this? I'm reminded of a... A definition that I just came across recently, which has been helpful to me, a definition of expositional preaching. That may be a new term for some of you. That's what we try to do here. Expositional. Try to, you know, expose, unfold, explain the Word of God. Expositional preaching. And this particular pastor said that expositional preaching, the goal is to communicate the content and the intent of the passage. And I thought that was a good phrase. The content. So what, what is in here? That's what I'm trying to do, or Ben, or whoever else preaches from this pulpit. Explain the content of this passage, not just what I happen to be into this week, or what I'm reading, or what seems interesting to me, but what is the content? What's described here? What is this about? But not just the content, also the intent of the passage. Because I could stand up here and and just give a kind of running commentary, and then this Greek word means this, and it means this, and here's the explanation. While we want to do that, that itself is not preaching. It it isn't conveying the intention. Why is this passage here? What is the author trying to do with this verse, this paragraph, this chapter, this book? And behind the human author, what is God 
trying to do? What is his intention? And so when I come to a passage like this and think, how am I going to preach this? I think, what, what is the content? That's sort of the easy part. Just explain. Here's what this means. But what is the intent? What is this passage trying to accomplish? Why did Peter write this paragraph to this congregation? And why did God inspire it? Now, here's what we know about the book of Second Peter. The overall message is that Peter wants these Christians to be godly. He wants them to be godly, to make every effort to grow and love and faith and knowledge and all the rest, to be godly. And we also know that false teachers are in their midst telling them that godliness doesn't matter. And there's a number of reasons why they're saying that. They, they want to live their own licentious lifestyle. They don't believe Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. They don't believe in the end of history as we know it. All those reasons. But, but the take home is it doesn't really matter how you live. You don't have to be godly. So the whole book is Peter trying to combat this teaching and those who are falling prey to it and exhort the people that they must be holy. So this paragraph that I just read is part of the overall warning about these false teachers. The warning says, don't believe them, don't listen to them, don't follow their example, don't follow their advice. In fact, more than that, do not tolerate these people in your congregation. Some disagreements are to be tolerated. And there are some Christians who can't tolerate any disagreements. That's a mistake. But then there are some, like these errors, that are not to be tolerated. So if Peter is trying to warn them, now think of what we just read in this paragraph. What in particular is he trying to do to warn the people? Well, I think it is this. He wants to paint such a vile, ugly, distasteful picture of these false teachers that they will be absolutely repulsed. Now, I must hasten to add, he's not making things up. He's not just saying, well, I want to make them look bad. No, what he wants to do is show these men for what they really are. That's what he's trying to do. The language is harsh. It's maybe grating on some of us. If you were to read a book or a blog that described a contemporary Christian teacher in this way, something said, this man is an irrational animal. He's born to be caught and destroyed. He's a blot. He's a blemish. Look down at verse 17. He's a waterless spring, a mist driven by a storm, a gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for him. Well, yeah, that'd be hard. The tone police would not be happy with that. Now, here's where we must insert a caution. The language, this hard language, is sometimes warranted, but it is not always. And in fact, it's not often warranted. And this is where some Christians get into trouble. They, the, you can find any sort of example you want in Scripture of hard language. And, and you can always, if you choose, channel your, your inner Elijah at Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal and just sort of blast people, sarcasm, is your God on the toilet? What's he doing? And you can find biblical precedents for that, and there's a time for that. But that's not every time. 
And what happens is if you only have one volume level, pretty soon you won't be heard. So it's, it's like if you are quick to label everyone with whom you disagree, a socialist or a fascist or a racist, I mean, those are loaded terms and certainly they, they fit some people in the world. But if you just throw them out at the drop of a hat, then what will happen if you do actually meet someone who wants to exterminate an entire people group? You won't have any language left. You've already blown it. So we must be cautious with this kind of inflammatory speech. But on the other hand, okay, so we must be cautious. On the other hand, there are times, and this is where it takes great discernment and wisdom as a Christian, and maturity, there are times where you throw caution to the wind and you need to speak with this strong language. And the language Peter uses here, it's not just defensible. Well, okay, it's actually necessary. And I would submit to you that his tough, hard, even seemingly strident language is in this instance an expression of his pastoral care. It's an expression of his love for the people and his desire to guard them. He cares about this flock. He is worried for them. And he is jealous that they not follow these false teachers. And so he takes great pains to paint a picture of these teachers that is positively unattractive. Because what they're teaching is unattractive. If you can really see it for what it is. Now no doubt the false teachers did not parade around like this. We must always remember false teachers don't advertise as false teachers. The first church of false teaching. Come on in. Welcome. Services every week. We'll give you lies. Well, no, of course, that doesn't work that way. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. They secretly bring in destructive heresies. Secretly. So don't think that the false teachers will appear to you with some sort of grinchy grin. Remember? In the cartoon, there's that one scene where the Grinch has this grin and it just keeps curling and curling and curling with malevolence and mischievous malfeasance and other M-words and it's just curling and then his little hair tufts and it curls and it's just this, this perfect picture of sinister wickedness. And you expect that's what the false teachers will look like? Just walk in here and just the organ will start playing. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. Oh, well, we know. We know who we're dealing with here. No, it doesn't work that way. The false teachers do not come in to church and instead of wearing a robe from the pulpit, they dress like Darth Vader. It'll be very easy to spot. And they breathe sort of asthmatic-like. And they just talk. And No. They're secretly. In fact, they're enticing. They're attractive. They sound very plausible, at least on the surface. Which is why Peter wants to show them for who they really are. He doesn't have to make them ugly. He simply has to reveal their ugliness. To show them in their true colors so that the church will, oh, that's what we're dealing with. We want nothing to do with them. So what made these false teachers so ugly? Get to that in just a second. But let let me just say something about how we should listen to this sermon. There's really two take-home points. And one is that as you hear this description of 
the ugliness of their false teaching, perhaps it will help you discern false teaching that is certainly out there in this country. Sometimes prominently, sometimes on bookstore shelves, sometimes at conferences. And you can sort of hear echoes and you think, oh, that's why something didn't quite seem right to me. Now, the other way to listen to the sermon is not just to think about, well, where might be the false teachers out there, but to look in your own hearts, honestly, do I have certain tendencies? Are are some of their characteristics not in full? I doubt very much any of you fit this description, but are there certain resonances with your own character that you share with these false teachers? So that's how I want you to listen. I have three points, three ways in which these false teachers were ugly. They were brash, they were blots, and they were boneheads. Number one, they were brash. You see verse 10, they were bold, willful. Up earlier in verse 10, they despise authority. Now, how did they despise authority? This is a little tricky. It says that they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Who are the glorious ones? There's a lot of debate about this. I think the best case is to argue that the glorious ones is a reference to demons. Why why glorious? We didn't think of demons being glorious. Well, not glorious in the sense of good, but in the sense of they they do have a, a magnificence that exceeds human beings. They were created by God, these angelic beings, and we don't know how it happened, but if God pronounced all of creation good in Genesis 1 and then in Genesis 3, there is a devil on the scene. Something happened where there was some kind of fall with these angels. So these glorious ones, I think, is a reference to evil angels. Now, one of the reasons I say that, if you turn over a few books to the book of Jude, Jude, just over past 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude and 2nd Peter have lots of overlap. It may be that their 2nd Peter was dependent upon Jude in some way, or whatever the case, the relationship, they're saying many of the same things, and so Jude can often help us understand 2nd Peter. When you look at Jude, verse 8, Yet in like manner, these people, false teachers, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. There's that language, glorious ones. Now, verse 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he, that is Michael, good angel, did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So there we have in Jude, clearly the context is talking about good angels and the difference between them and these false teachers rejecting bad angels, glorious ones. So you go back to 2 Peter and you see that part of their brashness, these teachers were, were very flippant toward the spiritual powers of darkness. Now what did this look like? What, how did they blaspheme glorious ones, and why is Peter? I mean, you think, well, yeah, you're not supposed, you don't say nice things about devils. What are they getting in trouble for? Well, we don't know for sure, but here 
is the most plausible explanation, I think. It seems that these men, we know that they were encouraging ungodliness. And perhaps as they were exhorted to godliness, they they rejected that. They did not consider bondage to sin any kind of threat. They did not think their sins exposed themselves to Satan's mastery. They did not take seriously the power of sin or the power of darkness. And so, as best as we can figure, again, there's some speculation here, that when they were admonished about the devil and his Minions, maybe when they were admonished, hey, look, what you're doing, you're going to get yourself enslaved to this sin. When they were warned about it, they did not take the warning seriously. Maybe they said something like, ah, Satan, we don't believe in Satan. The devil's irrelevant. Demons are make-believe. Evil spirits, ridiculous. I, I, we have power to resist those stupid things. Maybe that was their blasphemous Judgment. That, that was their kind of attitude. It was a brash, there's no fear, no danger here for these silly demons, for, for sin, for Satan getting a foothold. That's all nonsense. And they were ignorant about these angelic beings. Now, this is strange for, for at least those of us in this country. This whole business of you know angels. And earlier in chapter 2, we heard about... Angels, and it seemed to be a reference to Genesis 6 where the angels come down and have sex with women and they give birth to the Nephilim and all this weird stuff. And it seems very strange to us. And on the one hand, we must be careful because there's a lot that we don't know about angels and demons. And some of the things we think we know actually come from John Milton's Paradise Lost and not from the Bible. So we must be careful not to make more of it than is there. But on the other hand, I think it's safe to say, in our context, our danger is probably in the other direction, that we would be ignorant of the spirit world, that we would be flippant and carefree about demons and the devil. And we would think, no big deal. And we'd think, uh, you know, I don't know how many of you will know anything about this illustration here, but, but like Carmen, Carmen, this old you know, Christian music singer, and he'd have these videos and, and every music video, he always got some beautiful woman and he would go around and just kind of shoot demons, literally. And he'd just sort of shoot the devil. And he always was this guy with horns and looked very grotesque. And he'd just walk around and boom, shoot demons. And that, that's sort of, that's what the Christian life is like. And you just walk around and there's the devil and you shoot him down. It's very exciting. I think that's a bit too flippant. Or you think of... Uh, how easy it is, how many opportunities there may be to get very involved with sort of occultish things. Now, listen very carefully. I, I do not have a problem with, with Harry Potter, with Lord of the Rings. Uh, but, but it is possible there are, are certain games, certain and people don't really take seriously that to get deep into some of these role-playing games, deep into some of these musical styles does bring you deep into dark things. Not wise to think that, well, we are obviously too mature, too strong. We're not any sort of threat. Or perhaps most seriously, how many of us often will pray the Lord's Prayer where it says, 
Deliver us from evil. Or I think some translations have it, and it's probably a little bit better. Deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. If that is not a frequent point of your prayer, are you not fitting somewhat into this category? You're very brash and willful. You don't, you don't need help with temptation. You don't feel any sort of threat in your day that the evil one may lead you in a place you had no intention of going. Well, these teachers were ignorant. They're ignorant about their own destruction. They were like irrational animals, Peter says. They're, they're like fish. Uh, fish are swimming and now, I've only been fishing a few times in my life, I'm sorry to say, and I think I could add up uh, the number of fish I've caught on my one horn here. Um, none, no fish I've ever caught, so maybe my fish are not as irrational as your fish. But you think about it, the, the, the fish never seem to all figure out that, wow, a, a magic worm has appeared just out of nowhere. Look at that. There it is again. It's bobbing. What happened to Ralph when he ate it? I don't know. But there's another one and another. That's what Peter's saying. They're, sort of, they're just allured by it and they're, very, they're irrational. These teachers don't understand and those who follow them don't understand. They're destined to be destroyed. Okay, it's easy to say, well, those are bad guys, false teachers. But what about in our own hearts? Is there any sort of attitude that you have, that I have, bold, brash, willful. Here's some characteristics of people who are bold and willful. Number one, they're supremely confident about everything. Those people are annoying. I know because I resemble it sometimes. They just, you really know everything about everything? Supremely confident. Or second, They pronounce judgments all the time, often on matters of which they are ignorant. And we're kidding ourselves if we think we don't do this as Christians. It's very easy for us to take somebody like Richard Dawkins and all of his spewing venom at Christianity and say, he doesn't even know what he's talking about. He's dealing with with fifth grade arguments. And even other atheists have said, Dawkins, you're not doing us any favors. This is not very intelligent stuff. Ah, well, look, that's nonsense. And then we realize, well... Do we venture off into other sort of fields and make bold pronouncements? We really don't know what we're talking about. We're ignorant. Or perhaps we speak that way about our friends or other Christians. Another characteristic, brash, bold, willful people, they do not listen to reason. Peter says these teachers are irrational. There's a, some of you know better than I do, there's a Wells Hall preacher. I don't know if he's been back in years past. I've, Saw him previously. Give this sort of repent or, or else damnation. And, and really, when I've heard him before, a, a very strong Pelagian and legalistic message. I think it's the same person or same group of people. They were at Hope College when I was there. And we'd all get riled up and try to engage. And there's no engagement. There's nothing. There's, there's no desire. There's not interest in conversation. It's just declamation. By contrast, uh, in our varsity a few years ago had one of their evangelists, Cliff Connickley, and uh, also very loud, but honestly took questions, honestly engaged with people. I thought it was a very marked difference. 
when you meet with people who are, have no interest whatsoever. And listen to me, this is people on the far liberal end and the far conservative end. You can get far conservatives who are, they know how to be obnoxious. They're not interested in listening to anything. They're not interested in reason. It's just, boom, and it's going to go up on Facebook and it's going to go up on Twitter and their blog and everything else and just blast you away. It's irrational. And these people don't think they will get caught. They don't imagine that anything will ever catch up with them. And this is really the mark of a fool, isn't it? A fool is someone who has the inability to look down the road and see their current trajectory. That's a fool. You see people who are spiritual fools because they they cannot think, what will this lifestyle, what will this choice, what will this sort of attitude, what will I be like in ten years? All they can think about is, ah, there's a worm and I want to eat it. And they don't care to consider the hook. And if you point out a hook to people who are irrational, brash, bold, and willful, if you point out the hook to them, they will curse you for it. That's these false teachers. They're brash. Number two, they're blots. You look at verse 13 and 14. mentions two sins in particular. Greed is one of them. They're, they have hearts, verse 14, trained in greed. This could be anything. Greed for food, for, for popularity, greed for success. Certainly it's greed for money. I think there's always a danger. I understand there are some cultural situatedness with this, but I think it's a danger when people can see Christian teachers getting obviously very wealthy by being Christian teachers. Just something, people start to ask questions. Well, why is he really doing this? For Jesus or for the plane? Or for the bends? Or for the 10,000 square feet? Whatever it is. I think there is a real danger. There is a danger for any Christian teacher. And here I speak to myself more than anyone if you can make money by teaching, okay, so I make money as a, your pastor, I actually make a little bit of extra money from writing books. And uh, I'd happily at any time take any questions about that. I've talked, I have an oversight committee, I've talked at length with our, our leaders and have every interest in being transparent, what happens to that, and some goes to the church, and how do you work out? You, some things are happening on church time, others aren't. And my desire is to be completely above board with any of that. But I just know there is always a temptation. And it's just honest to say you must be aware of it. If you can make money teaching Christian things. And I think others... They're honest, people who have the opportunity to write or to speak, and you can, you can think, hmm, well, here's a project. Maybe the church needs to hear this. Here's this project. It'll make more money. Hmm. Here's this opportunity, and it's small, and it's irrelevant, and it's nothing. Here's this, and it's very big, and it'll be money. It's just, it's just human nature. And we must be on guard against this. There is a danger to our souls, any of us, and especially to those who preach or teach like these false teachers. There's a danger to the witness of the church, a danger that it would, you would subtly start to make decisions based on the dollars. Pray that would never happen. 
The other sin is sensuality. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery. Sensuality means they live to gratify the senses, what they can see, taste, touch, feel. It's all, what can they do to gratify the senses? And more than that, they openly revel in it. Verse 13, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. It is out in the open. This is one of the differences in our culture versus a few generations ago. I'm not one who thinks everything was good and then everything now is bad. Or that people didn't have sexual sin 50, 100, 200 years ago. But what certainly is different is it is much more out in the open. There is an open revelry. What we have in our country is a loss of shame. A loss of shame. And it's hard again not to mention something about the debate over Homosexuality is just, you know, most weeks in this book, there's there's something relevant pertaining to this very controversial debate in in our culture and even in some of our churches. And I'm often asked by people, why why you talk so much about homosexuality and how it's a sin and why have you made a big deal of that in your denomination or why do you write about that? Why are you talking about it? Why do you talk about that one sin all the time? There's two things that I say. One, come to my church. We talk about a lot of other sins. Equal opportunity. Lots of other sins are bad. Number two, if there is less noise about other sins, it is only because people are not openly celebrating them. There is not a bitterness pride march. So I've wished many times, I've said it before, that, that this were not the issue that is upon the church and our generation, but it is. We must be faithful. It would be much easier if every Christian could agree that homosexuality was wrong and then we could just get on with the business of trying to, to love, which we haven't always done well. But alas, we must do that as we also defend and also point out that there are false teachers Now, Peter says that when you have this sensuality, along with it comes an insatiable appetite for sin. Verse 14. That is one of the saddest things about sin is that it never satisfies. People who get entrenched in pornography will tell you that the things you did or saw years ago no longer become enough. And you always are are pushing the boundaries out and looking for things that are more weird and twisted and deviance. And that's not just a symptom of pornography. That's what sin is like. You get this sin, you're not satisfied with that sin. You need another sin and another sin. It's just like a guy and a girl when they're dating. How far is too far? What can we do? What can't we do? At least every dating couple I've known uh, that's hard. And if you think, well, let me do a little, a little bit more. Never satisfied with a little bit more. You want a little bit more. And then 15 minutes turns into a 30 minutes, turns into 60 minutes, and more, more, more. That's just what sin is like. There's an insatiable appetite for it. That's why it's very sad that people 
who give themselves over to sin encourage others to give themselves over to their sinful appetites. They think, well, I only want you to be happy. I know what a struggle it is for you to to not do this sin you so much want to do. And they think they will make you happy and they will make you most miserable. Long-term dissatisfaction. Peter says they are blots and they are blemishes. You compare with chapter 3, verse 14. This is the exact opposite of what we are to be as Christians. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. In Greek, if you want to make a word the opposite, you put an A or an alpha at the front. Theist, atheist, someone who doesn't believe in God. So these words here are spiloi and aspiloi, momoi, a momentoi. So blot, Christians are to be unblotted. Blemish, unblemished. They are leaving a bad mark, Peter says, on your fellowship. Verse 13, they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Ah, there's the key. They're feasting. We get some hints here at the importance and the nature of church discipline. Had church discipline cases in our church in the past year. Not something that the elders ever take lightly or ever do joyfully. But it's part of being shepherds. And we see here some of the reasons why. And why it is such a, a, a grave sin when churches neglect discipline. He, he talks about these feasts. In 1 Corinthians 11, they're called these love feasts, agape feasts. And they would coincide with communion. Communion was different. It wasn't just a little piece of bread and a little teeny drink of juice or wine. It was a feast and often accompanied these love feasts. So when you come together and you break bread for the Lord's Supper, it's like big church potluck. Thanksgiving feast. Here we all are. We're gathered together. We're eating this meal together. And then we share the bread and we share the cup. And it is in that atmosphere that Peter says, look, these Vile teachers are among you. You're letting them bring hot and ready to the potluck. They are not allowed at the Lord's Supper. That much is clear. And more than that, I think we get a hint here why Peter will say, or Paul will say, with with such a one, do not even have fellowship. Do not even eat with such a one as these. And people ask me all the time, well, what, what does it really mean if someone is excommunicated from the church? What does it mean you don't even eat with them? You don't have fellowship with them? Does it mean you shun them? I don't think so. Does it mean if you're related to them or you have a long-term friendship with them, you could never have them over for a meal to talk about things? I don't think so. What I think what it does mean is, is besides just not being welcome at the Lord's table, it means in these contexts of explicit Christian Feasting and fellowship. That their presence there can be a blot and a blemish. Now, I suppose there's always the exceptions. Well, they came and they're there and we're having a very important conversation with them. Yes, what he's talking about is people who come and you act like nothing has happened. Yes, how you're living. Yes, what you're doing, what you're teaching. Eh, come on in. Have a chicken wing. Have some macaroni. How are the kids? Sit down. 
Peter says they are a blemish to you. They are living a double life of greed and sin over here and then they want to be part of the church family and it cannot work that way because their meal was a, a, a part of this larger whole of celebrating the atoning work of Christ and to have them there is to make a mockery of that celebration and of that fellowship and ultimately of the Lord Himself. The danger we also see is that they entice unsteady souls. See that the second half of verse 14? They entice Unsteady souls. This is part of the reason why we are to have nothing to do with false teachers and false brethren. And why pastors and elders must guard the flock. Because you do not want wolves rubbing shoulders with the sheep. That doesn't bode well for their long-term security. You're not a good pastor. Yes, we are so loving, so open, so tolerant. We have wolves. Nice for the wolves, not so nice for the sheep. It sets a bad example. The, the unsteady sheep don't know, well, maybe wolves are okay. Hmm. Maybe that sort of lifestyle is, is not a big deal. It confuses the sheep. They may think the wolves are really sheep. And so this is why discipline, guarding the flock is so important. Because there are unsteady souls. Are you an unsteady Christian. You're this boat and it's, it's listening from side to side all the time. And you're, you're, whoa, you're so far up and boom, you're so far down. And you read this book and you're, whoa, that's the best thing ever. Then this person, that's the best thing ever. And you're just rolling with the waves. Oftentimes, those who are unsteady are the nicest people. Now, not an excuse for you people who aren't nice, but... Uh, they're often the nicest people because they're, they're constantly flexible. They have a radical inability to upset whoever is in front of them. They will tell you what you want. And all of that is not a sign of maturity, but a sign of instability. They listen to who, the last person who talked to them. Oh, yeah, sure. They're persuaded by the most powerful personality. They choose whatever is the path of least resistance. They are easily swayed by charming flatterers or pleasant smiles. Listen, there's been just as much harm done in the church of Jesus Christ by arrogant, brash, bold, willful wolves as there has been by very neat, nice, but unsteady sheep who don't know what to stand for. And it is one of the great, great strengths of this church that the, the leaders here and indeed the, the core of this congregation, old and new, I think are filled with so many steady people. And I have found that to be, to be rare. I've found lots of churches where people are, are either very, very doctrinally right and they're not the sort of person you'd ever want to be around. And churches where the people are just wonderfully friendly, but they're very unsteady. And I've found so many people here has made it such a pleasure to serve and and to lead because so many folks are warm, gracious, but when it comes down to a hard decision, they know how to make hard decisions. I love that about this church. And one of the things we want to do as a congregation is to help put ballast in people's boats while they're here. You know, ballast, either sand or water or something 
in the ship and it keeps it from listing side to side. You may only be here for a few years. We realize people come connection to the university or to the town. And many people come through our midst three, four, five, two years. We love that. We wish they all could say, but we, we love that. And we want to put ballast in your boat, especially students, so that when you come, maybe your vessel is rocking back and forth. And when you leave, you're able to set sail a little straighter, a little less wobbly, a little less likely to be enticed. So these false teachers were brash. They were blots. And quickly, lastly, they were boneheads. That's basically what Peter is saying. He compares them in verses 15 and 16 to Balaam. Balaam appears in Numbers 22 through 24. And if you just read those three chapters, you think, well, he doesn't seem like that bad of a guy. The Moabites were trying to hire him to pronounce a curse on the Israelites. And he he keeps sort of stumbling and fumbling and he has to say what the Lord has him say. And so it seems like the Lord turns this for good, which he does. But if you read on to Numbers 25 and understand Balaam and the rest of Scripture, you see he is positively one of the weaseliest guys in the Bible. And the Jews did not have anything good to say about Balaam. To be compared to Balaam was a low blow, but it's a deserving blow. It says here that these false teachers have not followed the way. They have forsaken the right way, verse 15, and gone astray. There's an obvious parallel with Balaam. This is literally what Balaam did. The princes of Moab said, come, we'll pay you money, pronounce a curse on our enemies, the Israelites. And Balaam went up with them to pronounce a curse. He literally went the wrong way. But... You may know the story. The angel of the Lord blocked his path repeatedly. And the donkey saw an angel of the Lord blocking the path when Balaam himself could not see it. And finally, after three times, the the Lord gave the donkey speech. So it's always a, a good line. If the Lord can speak through a donkey, he can use you and use me. He spoke through the donkey. And what's the point? Well, the point in numbers and the point here is this is how far gone Balaam was. His donkey had more spiritual sensitivity than he did. It is meant to be an insult. It is meant to be a nice biblical put down. Your donkey's got it better. All right, who's the small group leader here? Balaam? No. You have a pet? Yeah, that would be better than you, Balaam. That's what these false teachers are like. He was the son of Beor, it says. That was his father. It's interesting. In the Greek, it says he was a son of Besor. And some of the older translations say son of Besor. All the newer, most of the newer ones say Beor because I think, well, maybe that's just a variation on the name Beor. But there may be a play on words here. Besar was the Hebrew word for flesh. And Peter is saying he's a son of Beor, and he calls him a son of Besor. Maybe saying he. He's a son of the flesh. That was his father. Biblical writers often use puns like this. Words had meanings. Names had meanings. But the bottom line is, Peter says he was a spiritual fool, just like these teachers. Verse 16 says the prophet was mad, not literally crazy, but he was spiritually mad. We know people can be mentally handicapped. People can be physically 
handicapped. Now, Peter introduces a new category. You can be spiritually handicapped. You're spiritually disabled. That, that's not making light of any of those other, but that's what he's saying about these teachers. And what makes you spiritually disabled? A persistent stupidity? A remarkable blindness? A willful ignorance? And a stupendous selfishness? I say, well, that's harsh language. It is, but it's meant to be. Because Peter wants to show these false teachers for all of the ugliness that they possess. So here's where it all comes down for us. Do you have eyes trained to recognize what is beautiful and what is not? That's, that's part of Christian maturity. And it is often as much a, an aesthetic thing as an intellectual thing. There, there, there's just something as the Spirit works and develops you that you say, that's ugly to me. That movie, what it portrays, is ugly to me. I don't, I don't need an argument. I just know that is unattractive, that I'm repulsed. Do you have eyes trained for it? Part of discipleship, parents, Bible study leaders, ministers, part of discipleship is to train our kids, our students, our churches, that they might see the good, the true, and the beautiful in what is good, true, beautiful. It's one of the roles for, for artists, for storytellers, for movie makers in our, in our culture, can you help to show people what is good so that they are attracted to it and show what is evil so they are repulsed by it? That, that's the, the danger in so much of our entertainment, not so much, well, there might be a bad word or a bad... You've got to be careful. But the deeper issues is what's going on with our hearts. And it can be a, a PG Disney movie or it can be an R something else... And you're watching it and you find you're, you're drawn and suddenly your soul is, is made to not like what is good and true and beautiful. And you are drawn and enticed by what is ugly and vile. We must be trained to see it outside of ourselves. And most of all, we must be trained to see it even in our own hearts. We must be willing to have an open eye to our own ugliness, vileness, revulsion. Now, the best way to do that is to not uh, just navel gaze and dig down deep every day. Actually, the best way to train yourself with those sort of eyes is to look on Christ. Fix your eyes on Christ. He is all that is true and all that is beautiful, all that is good. That's why I'm not often persuaded by the arguments that, well, I need to, I need to go and watch this. This thing, because I so I can understand what the culture is doing. No, if you look at Christ, if you fix your eyes on Christ, you will have your eyes trained to recognize what is good, what is true, what is beautiful, and to be repulsed by what is ugly and what is vile. Because Christ is all beauty, all goodness, all truth for us, and God has given us a picture of all that is light in His Son. Jesus Christ. And so that's what he beckons us to do, to look upon Christ, look upon Christ, look upon Christ. And then as you turn to see the world, you will be trained to see what is good and what is not. And as you look at your own hearts, you will know what is sweet and what is bitter because you have looked upon 
the one who is always sweet, always tender, always compassionate, always strong, always gracious, always loving. Let's pray. Lord, guard us. We're we're fairly heady people and we like doctrine. That's very good. Uh, We do not want to think that that means we are not susceptible to false teaching or that we would never possibly uh, find enticing something that is ugly to train us, train our minds, also our hearts. Our eyes, guard us, protect us, we pray. Your church here, your church around the world, there is so much error, so much that is false. There are so many attitudes in our own hearts which are not keeping with Christ. So purify us, we pray, and turn all our thoughts to Jesus. In His name, amen.